0: Hello everyone, Um, if you haven't met me my name is Scott, I'm uh, part of our community here in Holy Trinity, I'm part of the teaching team and I'm also a chaplain in uh, UCD Um, and today we're continuing our traveling companion series and we're looking at this, um, the journey that Jesus and his disciples take from Galilee towards Jerusalem, hi Phoebe. Um, and as they're uh, the things that happen along the way, so some of the things that happen are encounters between uh, Jesus and his disciples and people that they meet along the way, people who are um, uh, Jews and part of the nation of Israel, and people who are Gentiles or, or Samaritans uh, in the different regions that they're traveling through. And they're, so these are encounters with the insider and the outsider, they're um, I- encounters with the powerful and the powerless. Um, and all of this is happening against a backdrop of everything that's happening across the world this is that quiet story that's happening on the other side that in many ways is um, in the minds of most people at the time would have been so unimportant. And that's one of the most fascinating things about history is the ways in which things that are happening at at a period in time and they will one day be considered central or crucial are actually completely missed or ignored by the people of that moment. One of my favorite examples of this is at the end of the Easter Rising, Michael Collins claimed that he saw prisoners being mistreated by a captain in the Royal Irish Constabulary, a Captain Percival Lee Wilson, who is a district inspector. And Collins vowed that he would avenge his compatriots. And so um, at his instruction, six IRA men traveled down to Gorey in County Wexford, where they shot Lee Wilson dead outside his home on June 15th, 1920, just over 99 years ago. Now, Captain Percival's wife, she was a pediatrician. Her name was uh, Dr. Marie Lee Wilson. And she um, was a Catholic, and and during this time of grief and heartbreak, she um, sought out the support of a Jesuit priest who helped her walk through her grief and turmoil and all the things that she was feeling and experiencing in the middle of all this. And the story kind of continued, but she never forgot the support that she got um, from uh, the Jesuit community. And so in the 1930s, she donated a painting to the Jesuit fathers in Dublin. And they took this painting and they, they put it up above the fireplace in their dining room, and it hung there on Leeson Street for around 60 years. In the early 1990s, uh, Father Noel Barber asked the senior conser- uh, cons- uh, conservator at the National Gallo- uh, Gallery of Ireland, somebody whose name I wish I had been born with, Sergio Benedetti, is just it's just too cool. Um, So Sergio, I'm sure he prefers Mr. Benedetti, but Sergio, um, he came in to look at their paintings and see if any of them would have been worth restoring. And it was only as the layers of dirt and ash and dust were removed that they realized that this painting that was hanging above the fireplace in the dining room actually showed incredible talent and quality. And it turned out that this painting that hung unprotected and unremarked upon over the meals of thousands of priests for decades was none other than Caravaggio's The Taking of Christ, a masterpiece worth over 30 million euro and one of the most valuable um, items in the National Gallery of Ireland where it now hangs. And it's amazing to think of like the unintended consequences of this, that the, the actions um, and reactions of people in the Irish War of Independence that led to somehow this painting that had been thought to have been lost for all time to have somehow find its way into a dining room where it would hang above a fireplace, where something with incredible value passed through so many hands and hid in plain sight for decades. When we look at the history of the first century, a history that includes emperors who come and go, and wars that are won and lost, and lands and regions that change hands and change back, it's amazing to think that a rabbi and his disciples walked through uh, disputed lands from Galilee towards Jerusalem, and that this rabbi taught his disciples a prayer, and then that prayer would be prayed thousands of times by billions of people. Um, this is our text for this morning, is in Luke 11. Is, is Jesus teaching this prayer? It's Luke's account of the giving of the Lord's Prayer. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. And we ourselves, No matter how beautiful or revolutionary or fascinating or transformative um, something starts as, if you see it enough or read it enough or hear it enough or say it enough or sing it enough, it can become mundane. It can become rote or routine unless we actually take the time to bring it to life. And I think this so easily happens in all our institutions or all uh, parts of kind of human communal life together, but it's particularly true in faith communities that familiarity can breed contempt. And it's always an interesting experience being when you're in a faith community in different parts of Ireland to be part of a group that is praying the Lord's Prayer. There are times where when you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's slow and reflective and meditative. And there are other times where it's like being at an auction. You know, it's, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, soul, to the sinner at the back. Um, there, there's a, you know, a, 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 just a desire to run through it, a, a, a way in which we don't just know the words, but actually maybe more than the words, we know the rhythm. It's kind of like the Irish anthem at um, uh when you go to, if you, go, I have, am a Republic of Ireland season ticket holder for the Aviva, which is a particularly purgatorial way of living your life, um, and um, so I, I, I I'm there. now I didn't grow up in Ireland, so I have an excuse, right? I don't know the Irish national anthem. Um, I do know, however, from being um, at the Aviva, I do know the last line, because that seems like it's all anyone knows. Everyone gets up, they sing the first line, everyone's fine. Half the crowd, 38,000 people, sing the second line. And then there's basically a bunch of absolutely committed folks, usually the loyalists in, the, um, uh, in the, the kind of committed fans end down the end. They sing the rest of it for us, and we all stand there, you know, just mouthing it. And then eventually it comes to the last line, and we all, like, rise up together. We all know the end of it. And this is the danger of anything that we know too well. Um, can What should be obvious or familiar to us actually can become lost in its familiarity. And so I think like delving into something like the Lord's Prayer, it's like peeling away the layers and years of dirt on Caravaggio's painting. Beneath all our baggage and experience is something wondrous, transformative and revolutionary. And it begins with the word Father. Now, this may seem normal to us, but this would have bordered on sacrilege in the first century because greetings and names, they really, really mattered. The longer the salutation or introduction somebody warranted was the more important they were. And the Gentiles in particular were known for like, long salutations before um, they uh, either spoke to somebody above them or spoke to one of their gods because they didn't want to offend their god by leaving anything out. And so these are the titles um, of Galerius Caesar, um, who, um, uh, this is the way in which he would have been addressed um, when the Caesars were believed to be gods. And this is quoted by the Christian historian uh, Eusebius. The Emperor, Caesar, Galerius, Valerius, Maximanus, Invictus, Augustus, Pontificus Maximus, Germanicus Maximus, Egypticus Maximus, Phobicus Maximus, Sermenticus Maximus, Sermenticus Maximus, Sermenticus Maximus, Sermenticus Sima- Maximus, Sermenticus Maximus, Persicus Maximus, Persicus Maximus, Carpacus Maximus, Carpacus Maximus, Carpicus Maximus, Carpicus Maximus, Carpicus Maximus, Carpicus Maximus, Carpicus Maximus, Armenicus Maximus, Abendicus Maximus, Holder of tribunal authority for the 20th time, emperor for the 19th, consul for the 8th, pater, patre, proconsul. (laughs) But Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. To the Jews and the Gentiles of the day, this would have sounded like walking into the Vatican for an audience with the Pope and saying, yo, what's up, Papa Frankie? Writers in the Torah, they described God as Father or like a Father, but Jesus is the first person in Scripture to address God as Father. This is new. And so while the faiths of the world in which they live talk to their God as if they have something to prove or something to define, Jesus addresses the God who has already proved His love, which is why we can know Him as Father. But the word is not just Father as we have the word Father. Kenneth Bailey has a brilliant book um, called um, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's definitely worth picking up because it's, um, it, you can use it as a reference book. You don't have to read it in a linear way, but it takes you through the Gospels as somebody who spent most of his life as an academic in the Middle East. And so he has this ability to draw out some of the stuff around the context that we wouldn't normally get, and it's definitely worth getting. And he writes this, The modern consensus among scholars is that the Lord's Prayer begins with the Aramaic word Abba. And therefore, we can assume that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Aramaic of daily communication rather than the classical Hebrew of written texts. So the first thing that we, we do once we dig into the language of the Lord's Prayer is we suddenly realize this beautiful truth that God speaks your language. God speaks your language. He does not just speak the language of priests, he hears the prayers of peasants. He doesn't just understand the words of the religious elite, nor is he only spoken about in the language of philosophers. He can be talked about and talked to in the same language with which you ask someone to pass the salt or encourage your child or tell your partner that you love them. The Gospels, if you were to read them in the original text, you find this this really kind of challenging um, uh, thing to explore, because there are stories written in Greek about the people of God who spoke Aramaic, but worshiped in Hebrew in an empire that spoke Latin. So there's all these different languages that are um, combining in this. But including the word Abba, the Aramaic word Abba in the Greek shows the importance of this word in the minds of first century Christians. If it it could simply be translated into into Greek, it would have been. But no, it's not because Abba holds something that's important. And so this word Abba then is not just prayed in Israel, but it spreads. It's prayed in the hills of Galatia, in the bustling city of Corinth, and in the prisons of Rome. Bailey goes on to to describe Abba as this. The Aramaic word Abba was used by an Aramaic-speaking person in talking to his or her earthly father. It was also used to address a respected person of rank. A student could use this word to address a teacher or a child, his father. So it's respectful and it's personal. It's intimate and it's reverent. And this is important for us to figure out because the language with which we talk about God matters. How many of you, if I I was to ask you to pray the Lord's Prayer, how many of you would pray the version with the these or the thighs and the thous? And how many would instinctually um, you, you have newer language for it? Okay. So, okay. So, a really good mix of people. What's really interesting about the these and the thys and the thous and our Father who art in heaven is that the the these the thys and the thous they're all 16th century language. But the challenge was in the, the challenge to us in this moment is that in the 16th century, thee, thy, and thou were informal. So you would say he or his to a king, but you would say thee or thy to a friend. But when we move into the 21st century praying words that were prayed 500 years ago, and we keep the same words, but the words change their meaning, then so does our theology and so does our belief about God. So by holding on to language that was originally informal and, and, and praying it now and praying the formality of it, Our words begin to communicate a distance or a disconnection from the God who taught us to pray, Abba, the God who teaches us to pray in the informal. And there's this challenge and there's more when it comes to figuring out what it means to actually live out the Christian faith. But the Christian faith actually breaks down a lot of the, um, the cultural and language markers that, um, that are central in others. Bailey goes on to write this, uh, both Judaism and Islam have a sacred language, Christianity does not. And this fact is of enormous significance. Enormous significance. I'm still saying Maximus in my head. It follows that if there is no sacred language, there is no sacred culture. All of this is a natural outgrowth of the Incarnation. If the word, Jesus, is translated from the divine to the human and becomes flesh, then the door is open for that word again to be translated into other cultures and languages. And this is the beauty of the... the, the the God that we're experiencing and, and trying to figure out how to follow, is that His goodness and His love and His character and his, his work and His reaching out to the world, it goes past the words that we use, the languages that we're bound by, the cultural norms in which we live, whether those are norms of, um, uh, of socioeconomic groups or racial divisions or national divisions, it, it supersedes all those things and the, the presence and the goodness of God is communicated beyond each one of them. We don't have time to explore the Lord's Prayer line by line, uh, but I would love for us to do that in the future. But I want to focus on like, three little things that make this prayer really, really distinctive to the people at the time. So to do that, we need to know that um, at this time, the Jewish people had a central prayer practice called Tefila Amada, something I am 99% sure on that I'm not pronouncing right. Um, and there was originally 19, 18 and then eventually 19 benedictions that were being formalized at around the time of Jesus and were eventually um, established under Gamaliel II around 100 AD. So when, Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, they're actually, this is a live question at the time where the society in which they're living are actually saying, like, how do we pray? When we pray, what should we pray? Like, this is a live conversation. The deb- debate was ongoing. And so Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, he actually um, riffs off different um, uh, parts of the established prayer at the time and changes their meaning in ways that are really crucially important. The first one he does is he changes the original prayer in the tefillah from from, uh, this prayer of praise to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to our Father. And in doing so, he opens this up from, this is no longer about who you're descended from. This is no longer about whether or not you're part of the correct racial group in order to be part of the kingdom of God. And it's no longer about simply what God has done in the past. It's about the God who is present as Father in the present. And then the second thing that he does is one of the prayers that is included in the Tefillah Amidah is the um, the prayer for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And instead, Jesus teaches them to pray, Your kingdom come. And so he liberates this faith from being bound by geography to a a place or a city in time, but rather a movement that is going out and and, and affecting and transforming everywhere. And another one of the prayers that he takes a spin on is the prayer to forgive. There is a prayer to forgive for God to forgive his people. But Jesus says, forgive us as we forgive others. And so he, um, he tacks on this, this, um, this extra part of it that draws about the way in which we engage or respond to what it is that we're praying for. So we see in this, in these, in these, in these tweaks and in these changes, in these things that he teaches the disciples to pray over and against what they would have learned to pray, he teaches them that prayer is not racial, it's relational. It's not simply about whether or not you're, you're um, it's not about whether or not you're part of the right group of people, it's about inviting people into relationship. It's not geographic, it's universal. This kingdom is coming for all, and it's for all. And it also doesn't focus on our individuality. It doesn't say, my father. It doesn't say, forgive us my sins. It says, forgive us our sins, our father. So it doesn't focus on our individuality, it focuses on our interconnectedness. And then Jesus goes on to clarify it with the story of the late night visitor. Um, Somebody knocking on the door and saying, give me bread, Um, and demanding that somebody come down and open up the door and and give him bread. And I've I've heard this story since I was a kid, and there was one thing that I never realized in this story uh, until this week. When the man comes to his neighbor's door and starts banging on it and says, come down and give me bread, he's not asking for something for himself. He's asking on behalf of his guest who arrived late at night. And so it's not that he simply has something that he wants and he goes and he pesters his neighbor with impudence with. He's asking his neighbor to partner with him in the provision for the hungry. He's asking him to come and join him in serving one who is in need. And so when Jesus then eventually goes on and talks about asking and seeking and knocking... It changes the narrative. If it had simply been going, you know, just like as if you go in your, uh, and knock on your neighbor's door, he'll let you borrow his 42-inch TV. Um, uh, so also, if you ask for TVs and seek for TVs and knock TVs, um, they shall be given to you. This isn't just about, this isn't about the fulfillment of your individual desires or pleasures, but it's about a relational life together, our interconnectedness. So when Jesus goes into the ask, seek, and knock, we can't disconnect it from what came before, because Jesus finishes it with how much more will will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So when we're asking, we're seeking, and knocking, we're not doing it based on our personal desires for fulfilment or the things that we want to fill our house with or fill our careers with or fill our CVs with or fill our Instagrams with. It's, that's, that's not what's driving this. We're asking, what is the Spirit doing in the world in which I live? It's not about asking for a new car or whiter teeth or washboard abs. It's about asking for the Spirit, asking for the Spirit to bring about God's will in your life and in our communal life together. It's about seeking out what the Spirit is doing and knowing that you will find it. It's not about seeking out buried treasure or lottery numbers, it's about having eyes to see the way that the Spirit is already powerfully at work in your friends and in your family and in our family together, and in the communities in which we live. And it's about the Spirit leading us to knock on doors, in the hope that he will open them. Not like necessarily doors of our careers or doors of our opportunities, but maybe it's the doors of people in our neighborhood who are lonely or disconnected or who feel unseen and invisible. Maybe it's about doors for People who are homeless or struggling to be able to find their way into as a result of our partnering with them because when the man comes to knock on his friend's door he's not knocking on his door on the door on his own behalf he's knocking on the door on behalf of the one who arrived in the middle of the night hungry and having left wherever he left in a way that he now finds himself in need And so that may be the refugee. It may be the asylum seeker. It may be the person in direct provision. It may be the um, person who's struggling financially. It may be this person who's struggling emotionally. But we're knocking on their behalf, either to go in and to bring them out, Or to go in and be with them, to go in and comfort them, or to liberate them from something that is painful. Because this is what it looks like for God's kingdom to come into the world. This is what it looks like for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what our Father longs for, and this is what His Spirit is doing. Let's pray. Jesus, it's amazing to think that as emperors made decrees and generals led armies and papers were signed that defined the, the fates of thousands and of millions of people in the first century. You made this journey with your companions. And while so much else of our of the history is lost to us, this Prayer and these stories live with us now, 2,000 years later. Father, we cry out to you, the one who speaks our language, the one who answers when we say Abba, the one who will pour out his spirit upon us. that when we ask for you, that when we seek you, that when we knock on your behalf, your kingdom will come and your will will be done. In your name, amen.